This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. Today on Dreamland, we're going down a very interesting path. The path of quantum physics and spirituality, Gnostic spirituality. It turns out that the ancient Gnostics knew things that we've always suspected that they knew, but that we couldn't really understand. But there is somebody who does understand this, a really fascinating guy. He's got his own show. He's got a new book out called Quantum Spirituality. And so I'd like to, without further ado, introduce Peter Canova, to you and to the Dreamland audience. It's his first time on Dreamland, and this book is wonderful. It's very wise and very empowering. He'll tell you a little bit about his show as well. His website is peterconova.com. Let me just start out with a few bullet points from the book. A master consciousness exists that is the source of every object and dimension, visible or invisible, including our material world. Our personal consciousness is part of this master creative force. This force seems concealed from us, and there is a reason for that. The solid 3D world has no objective reality independent of our consciousness observing and creating it. We are living in a matrix, like a holographic illusion. And this is the key part. Anyone can use the knowledge of these things to benefit their life. Peter Canova is an international businessman. He's had some life-changing spiritual experiences, obviously. Welcome to the show, Peter. I'm so glad to have you with us. Yeah, hi, Whitley. I'm excited. I think it's going to be a great show. Oh, yeah. Well, look, first off, you're an international businessman. You just told me you live on an island uh, off of St. Petersburg. I hope you're still there. there <laughs> yeah, I'll let you know in a couple hours. <laughs> yeah, right. uh, the, uh, and uh, you, you're obviously peeking in the background. You've got a beautiful home. When, it, when you say you were an international businessman, what does that mean? Well, I, you know, really since the time uh, I graduated uh, from uh, business school, uh, I've been traveling uh, overseas. I've been in numerous businesses, including shipping uh, and uh, consulting and development. But uh, for the last oh, t- t- 25, 30 years, uh, my brothers and I have had a, a company where we build luxury hotels, mostly Ritz Carlton's. And, um, you know, we've uh, we developed both globally and uh, domestically here. Right now, we kind of confine ourselves to the United States. But that was a very, you know, time-consuming effort to build up that company. And those experiences that you mentioned that I had that were, I was in my early 20s, set up kind of a divergent path for me. And gradually, uh, you know, I, I mean, I am still in business, but I've kind of taken a little bit of a backseat, more at a board type of level, and turned the reins over to uh, my brother because uh, of this um, 
other path that I, I, I embarked upon when uh, I had this series of spiritual experiences in my 20s that led me into the study of spirituality and quantum physics. So that became kind of a passion for me to reveal to people many of the, the things that I had discovered. You know, I cannot tell you how many people who come on this show have been touched by something that completely changed their lives. And we always like to ask, I have, I have two, obviously. I mean, I had a close encounter experience and that'll change your life if, if anything will. Uh, tell us about what happened. What, what came, what touched you? Well, it was really very unexpected. There was no, you know, ramp up, uh, to it at all. Um, when I was in my twenties, I found out, uh, I won't go into all the details, but I found out that I was a very accurate medical intuitive. All people had to do was give me somebody's name, age, and address, and just with that bare information, I could give a very accurate, um, you know, detailed analysis of what was going on with them physically or even psychologically. And when I got over the disbelief of doing that, yeah, um, yeah, it, it opened up kind of a floodgate of experiences. I had clairvoyance, clairaudience, telemetry, re- remote viewing premonitions, um, it opened up basically a whole nother world, a whole nother dimension to me. And I realized that there was another dimension or dimensions to existence that, that our existence here is just one of layers of, of other frequencies or realities of, of dimensionality. And, um, that, I know that kind of sounds a little bit cliche ish, but when, when you recognize that, Whitley, and I'm sure you know this, the way your yeah. close encounters were an experience to you, that it's hard to describe to other people who haven't been through that experience. But if you've been through that experience, you own it. You know it's a reality. You know it's a part of you know, the, the uh, existential fabric. And, uh, and that's um, really started me on a whole journey to understand what I was going through. So I started looking at ancient spiritual traditions and that led me eventually into quantum physics. And I guess the nexus there is they really, all of those subject matters of those disciplines deal with light energy and matter. And I think that's where the connections were, how I, how I got to where I am. And Peter and I are both students of what I consider possibly the weirdest mystery in the world, which is this mystery of how in the world ancient, I guess, mystics, you would call them, the Gnostics, understood what they did about the nature of reality because it dovetails with our the very latest understanding of physics. And that's, we're going to be talking more about that. Free Dreamlanders, we're going to take our first break right now and enjoy these commercials. And above all, think about getting quantum spirituality because this is a mind-opening book of major proportions. You can find Peter Canova at peterconova.com. Peter, tell us a little bit about your, your podcast. Yeah, the podcast is called Quantum Spirituality, which is the same name as the book. Uh, it's on Dream Vision 7 Radio Network out of Boston. It's uh, accessible through uh, my, my website, or you can just get, you know Google Peter Canova Quantum Spirituality. And uh, the subject matter really has to do with consciousness. I mean, that's what it all boils down to. Quantum physics, the, the study of ancient spiritual traditions, it all comes down to understanding 
uh, what consciousness is and the role of consciousness in the creation. And so, you know, I deal obviously like your show, Whitley, I, I get into a diverse, um, you know, discussions with different people, but that's sort of the core of, uh, of, of what the, uh, the, what the podcast is about. Yeah. And also I found it on YouTube by simply, uh, uh, searching Canova, C-A-N-O-V-A, and there the whole show was. Yeah. All, yeah. all the episodes were right there. Sure. You could do that yeah. also. Yeah. So, and it's it's quite well done. I, it, it, you can really learn a lot from it. And why is it important to learn this at all? I mean, we're talking now, and we haven't gotten into the details yet, but we're we're going to be talking about an ancient spiritual tradition that is at least 1500 years old and probably much, much older than that. Yeah. Uh, so why, what, what possible relevance does it have now? Well, it's not just the ancient spiritual tradition it's what the, the knowledge that the spiritual tradition deals with. And I liken it to this, um, you know, most people live their lives in fear. I mean, fear is probably the greatest impediment to human existence. And we encounter all kinds of obstacles in the course of our spiritual journey, in the course of our lives. And the question is that when you're doing that, do you, you know, do you want to live down the basement or do you want to be up in the penthouse where you can get a much broader view of the spectrum of life and understand the way things work and understand how things go on? Because at that point, you start to lead life around a little bit instead of life leading you around. And I think that that's really the payoff at the end of the day. The more conscious we become, and of course, these ancient spiritual traditions are one avenue that help us become more conscious and understanding of the creation and the position that we find ourselves in as uh, human beings. The more you understand these things, the more you have a grasp on life, it reduces the fear that you have. Uh, you, you start to have a context of understanding of just what th th things might be like, not only while you're living, but when you pass on to the other side. These are, these are uh, I think, comforting things. And uh, you can never have too much knowledge, I, I, I believe. I mean, knowledge is power. Information, we are in the information age. And, you know, right. you've heard that old adage, information is power. Well, I, I completely believe that. Fear is an absolutely central reality. It is the critical impediment to opening your mind to the truth of, of your existence. And, uh, you know, we, there's so many practices that work on fear. Fear of death is profound. I think it, I think it actually rules the human experience. I would agree. Now, you say I would agree with such authority. That encourages me to ask you, what can we do about it? Well, again, I, I think I, I think what we really need to do is look behind the apparent. Um, our whole existence is an appearance. It, 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 in all honesty, it's not a reality, and I can explain that statement more later on. But to answer your question, you know, directly, um, we live in a world of appearances, and what we think is isn't really what is. And there is much more to life. Life we have to start viewing as a broad spectrum. Uh, all we see is the visible portion of the light spectrum. There's a whole other spectrum of light that we don't see and that's out there, but is no less reality than what we can observe. And I think that the study of 
these these things, uh, quantum physics, um, ancient spiritual traditions. I think that these can afford us some tools of understanding what those dimensions beyond our observational experience can be. And once you start to immerse yourself in those and you 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 see that they are a reality, it, it, it changes your whole existence. Now, you have probably encountered the same thing, Whitley, that I have, which is that the experiences that you had, you know, the encounters that you had right. and um, the experiences that I had, they're so hard to describe to other people and have them have the same feeling that we have because they just yeah. haven't gone, gone through Something that. other than snickering. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of the difference of like, look, I can sit here and tell everybody that fire burns, but until you put your hand in that fire, you don't own that knowledge. You're taking it on faith. You're taking it secondhand from, from, from somebody else. But when you put your hand in the fire, you own the knowledge that fire burns. Well, it's the same way that if you pursue a course in life that, uh, you, where you're trying to answer these questions, eventually I do believe that most people will find the answers. And once they find, they find those answers, there, there's something that will happen to you. There's, there's events that will happen, happen. There's synchronicities, there's circumstances. It will draw things to you that will show you and prove to you beyond an intellectual doubt that these things that I'm talking about are, are in fact a reality. And when you understand that context, when you understand life in its expanded scope, it becomes a lot less fearful. The, the fear of dying becomes, you know, you start to view dying in a different way, the meaning of dying, what happens to you after death, that you continue, that a part of you continues. In fact, there's a part of us right now, I truly believe that there's, all, there's multiple versions of us in higher dimensions that have kind of dreamed our way or projected ourselves down here. So we're multidimensional creatures. And I think when we get to the point where we can understand that beyond just an intellectual proposition, where we can actually gain that experience, then that's when we transform. And the book that I've written, Quantum Spirituality, what I'm really trying to do, Whitley, is to provide a framework uh, to guide people along their spiritual journey. And like any roadmap, you want to have more than one coordinate. So you want to have north and south or east and west or latitude and longitude. My coordinates are ancient mysticism and modern quantum physics. And when I demonstrate to people in the book that they're really saying the same thing about reality, well, even though that may still be an intellectual proposition where there's smoke, there's fire. When people understand that from both a left brain objective and a right brain subjective perspective, it becomes a much more powerful um you know, source or guiding light for people on their spiritual journey. Now, of course, everybody has to do their own work. You can't just sit there and read books and all of a sudden, you know, like become enlightened. But, but it, it, like I say, it's a roadmap to help you along this, along the way and make your, your spiritual journey easier and more understandable. Yeah. You can't, enlightenment doesn't come from knowledge only. It comes from knowledge and from life, from living life. Uh, really living life. Yeah. Let's ask, I want to ask you now to go back in time to Alexandria, the city in Egypt, which was in the time of the Gnostics was the intellectual capital of the world, of the Western world anyway. It was a Greek city in Egypt founded by Alexander the Great. It had the great library at Alexandria and all of the most of the great scholars of the period would go to that city and live in that city. 
And when Gnosticism began, it was still pretty much a pagan city, but that would change. Can you tell us who the Gnostics were in, insofar as we know? And I know that is a kind of an open question, but uh, give us your idea of who they were and what their motives were. Yeah, I, I think that um, we have to first recognize that in the ancient world, there was a network of mystery schools where they would teach spiritual spiritual wisdom. And the, this it was kind of like an Ivy League network of um, spiritual academies that really stretched from India all the way to the British Isles in, in different forms. So there was what they a, a common spiritual wisdom way back when we call it the perennial philosophy today. Uh, it, it, it certainly had many precepts in common. Now, over thousands of years, there were, you know, cultural differences came, but, you know, still there were, there was a common set of principles of, of understanding of spiritual matters. And uh, the Gnostics had the great benefit, as you said, of being at Alexandria, which was a confluence of East and West. So we have direct evidence that there were um, Hindu influences from India, Zoroastrian from Persia, uh, of course, you were, you know, in the in the Near East, so you had uh, the Jewish Kabbalah, Egyptian Hermeticism, and Greek Hellenistic philosophy. All of these were um, synthesized, in a way, by the Gnostics. They had the advantage of understanding and being exposed to all these spiritual traditions, and they were able to sort of distill them down. And what I love about the Gnostics and their writings, if you really understand their writings, compared to all the other mystical traditions, is they were probably the greatest scientists of their age. They Their, their stories that were embodied in myths, because that was the way you trans, translated, you know, information to the masses back in those days. But yeah, they, they were uh, they were very, very scientific. And as I said, they predicted so many major theories of quantum physics. Now, yes, they started off, uh, you know, I mean, when Gnosticism per se... Uh, actually came into being, you know, uh, it was an evolution. Uh, probably you got down to the bottom of the funnel that made them Gnostic somewhere around 3,000, 2,500 years ago. So they predated Christ. Uh, and incidentally, one thing I, I might want to say here, we use the term pagan. In my understanding, in my studies, the pagans were probably more spiritually advanced than we are. Um, well, that, I agree that, with you there completely. Yeah. I, I know that to be true. Yeah, and the story, the story of how this beautiful tradition uh, was essentially destroyed and suppressed has had very much to do with the rise of uh, Christianity. But um, basically, uh, the Gnostics predated Christ. However, when Jesus started his ministry in Palestine, they became amongst the first Christians because they recognized that Jesus was teaching a Gnostic message. Now, how do we know this? Well, in all four of the Synoptic Gospels, it's said that unto the masses he taught in parables, but unto the disciples he gave the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Okay, And then we have further affirmations from early church fathers like Clement uh, of uh, Alexandria and Origen, both of whom were bishops of the early Christian church in Alexandria, that Jesus did indeed have a secret teaching that was only taught to a few, to the elect, and, and largely, largely an oral teaching. So what happened in early Christianity was there was a divergence. There were two branches of early Christianity. There was the outer church and the inner mystical church. The inner mystical church was uh, the, was essentially um, described 
in the Gnostic Gospels, the teachings in the Gnostic Gospels, which a large case of them were recovered in 1945, thank goodness. Otherwise, the church, the Orthodox Church did such a, a number on them that we might not have that much information on them if we hadn't had that fortunate discovery. But anyway, yeah, was, they really did a hell of a number. Go ahead. They, they did. And uh, it, it was um, uh, uh the church evolved along these two lines. Now the Gnostics attended the same church as the Orthodox Christians did. And when I say Orthodox Christians, it was the Orthodox Catholic church back in those days. It was all, you know, one, one church, not the, you know, broken up into denominations like we have today, but they all attended the same churches together, except that the, the Gnostics kind of viewed the Orthodox as spirituality 101, introductory spirituality, whereas they were more like graduate level. Um, but, uh, over time they really diverged because the outer church started to become the church of hierarchy and dogma and, you know, organization and discipline and so forth. And then when Rome essentially started meddling with Christianity, the Orthodox church assumed, assumed all the attributes of the Roman empire, you know, with a, right. uh, Senate, a Pope, uh, we were like an emperor and a, and a Senate, like the College of Cardinals and so forth and so on. So the Gnostics were uh, viewed as a threat because essentially the Gnostics said, wait a minute, we, we, you know, the church is claiming it's the intercessor between human beings and God. And, and it's not. Each of us has a direct line. Each of us is actually a direct um, emanation or projection of the divine itself. We don't need priests and we don't need bishops and we don't need a hierarchy to intercede for us and tell us, you know, what, what, what God's thinking. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it pointed out a very great divergence between Gnosticism and ancient mysticism and the way Christianity developed because Christianity, if you look at the creation story, we were like these little wind-up dolls that were created out of the dust of the earth, separate from our creator. So to make uh, uh, an easier analogy to understand, think of Pinocchio and Geppetto, okay? Geppetto was the creator, Pinocchio was the created. And that's how, essentially, the Orthodox Christian Church told us that we were created. Now, the Gnostics had a, a very different outlook, and they said, no, that's not the way it happened. There is no separation between the creator and the created the creator or the supreme consciousness or God. And it doesn't matter what name you give it. It's all the same, uh, all the same force, all the same energy projected itself out into other points of consciousness. So it would be like if you had an electrical grid and you had the power source, but then you had the relay stations. So the power source was the source and we were kind of like the relay stations, but we were all connected in, you know, this one grid or this one matrix of creation or existence. So you see, there was no separation. We were direct projections of, uh, of, of the, the source of the, of the divine. And therefore, why on earth would we need a man-made institution like a church to intercede for us. So you can see that this, this kind of thinking was very threatening to the Orthodox. Well, yeah. Because in those days, the uh, Roman empire was completely connected to the government and the, and the gods were one and the same in the sense that uh, Rome's power and ability to govern depended upon the favoritism of the gods. And when they began to have all kinds of plagues and alien, uh, excuse me, barbarian invasions and so forth, they needed a new God. 
And so Constantine decided it would be Jesus. And he basically turned him into a Roman god. Yeah, and like, and actually, my, my ethnic background comes from that whole tradition, both uh, Greek and Italian. Uh, I actually had a distant relative who was a, 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 Byzant, a Roman emperor in the Eastern Roman Empire for a very short period of time. It's a, that, that's a tradition that comes right from my background. And I can tell you, uh, besides everything you said is true, Whitley, and besides that, it was built on uh, obeying. It was built on obeisance. So obviously, you know, uh, in the Roman Empire, you obeyed or you were in big trouble. Well, that transferred over to the institution of the church, which became part of the Roman Empire, which is if you didn't tell the party line, if you didn't tell the dogma and the hierarchy that had developed in the church, you were going to be in big trouble. Yeah, specifically, you're liable to go up in flames. Um, <laughs> and they did. And they did. They, yeah. did. they did until uh, the Inquisition didn't end until 18. 20 or something yeah. and they weren't they were still walling uh people up and things in portugal i believe it, 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 until it, it, even at the very end of it so that that dictatorship of of dogma lasted for a long 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 time yeah and an interesting thing there whitley as far as, far as the time is concerned the last great gnostic church was actually the cathars in medieval france and the whole of southern France was following a Gnostic belief in the form of the Cathar religion. And again, this uh, animosity between the organized religion and, you know, the, 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 the Gnostic oriented religion popped up again so that the Pope formed an alliance with the king of France who coveted the wealth of the Gnostics because all the nobility in the south of France were where it was where the money is. The northern, the northern nobles and the king actually were poor compared to the uh, the South, well, they, they formed the only crusade against other Christians, which was called the Albigensian Crusade. And over a period of about 100 years, they eradicated this huge Gnostic church in, in southern France. So this, this whole, you know, unfortunate theme carried through many, many centuries. Now, also, the Knights Templar come into this, don't they? Yes. Can you explain exactly what they they had possession of extraordinary secrets can and and were eventually destroyed for the same reason the cathars were basically to get their wealth yes uh can you tell us a little bit about their relationship to gnosticism and perhaps an idea of the secret that they may have possessed well it was it was the legend is that um, they were excavating under uh, the Temple Mount. And um, I mean, we know there's a lot of passageways and things under the Temple Mount and that supposedly they found, uh, you know, many, uh, many secrets, which could have been, you know, some people say it could even have been the Ark of the Covenant or, or other, other um, you know, uh, holy relics. Um, it was probably to a large extent enlightened writings that were lost or hidden away uh, from, you know, destruction. And um, whatever it was, it gave the Gnostics insights that uh, a lot of others of that era did really, you know, didn't really possess. And whatever the case is that the Gnostics seem to have taken, I mean, the Templars seem to have taken something back to Europe with them. And remember, this is the very area 
where Gnosticism thrived. So, so certainly whatever they recovered was some kind of, at the very least, some kind of mystical knowledge. And uh, they took this back with them. And in a short period of time, they became fabulously wealthy. They became the first bankers uh, of, uh, of Europe. They, um, they basically set up a, a system whereby uh, money could be transferred back in those days from one location to another. So as people traveled, like, you know, going to a bank, you could check in from one location and, and get funds, uh, you know, to, um, to do whatever you needed to do in the new venue where you were. So they became very, very wealthy um, doing this, acting as sort of like bankers. And um, there, there was a whole um, other level uh, uh, that uh, it was called the Priory of Scion, where supposedly some of this, um, these relics or wealth or whatever was in a, a church and a church in France. It's, you know, it's a little bit hazy, but clearly something happened. We don't know exactly what, but clearly something happened. And the Gnostics themselves, I mean, excuse me, the Templars themselves, probably were the genesis of what I would call um, a more medieval evolution of Gnosticism, which uh, spurred on things like the Freemasons and the Troubadours and the tarot cards that we see. These were all very, very Gnostic in origin. Even today, uh, some of the mysteries of, of the, um, the Masons, the Freemasons, you know, certainly date back to date back to Gnosticism itself. So um, whatever the Templars did, they were kind of the bridge from the ancient Gnosticism that would have been present in the Middle East to the Gnostic influences that sprang up in Europe in the Middle Ages, like, you know, the, the Templars and uh, the, um, the Troubadours and the Freemasons and uh, other types of uh, organizations. And this, all of this rich sort of flux of uh, of uh, ideas as incidentally uh, your cats are, are coming up and down the stairs from time to time and oh they're, sorry they're, about that. oh no no don't no, be sorry about it i'm i'm mentioning them because i know my audience will notice them yeah and well you you can interview them next week they're they're very discreet in the way they move. It's almost as if they knew they're kind of sneaking behind you. And I think I think my Siamese heard you because you might now hear them in the background. Yeah, yeah, and there goes one of them back up yeah. again. Uh, it's almost as if they sort of know you're on camera and they're going up and down the stairs. In the I wouldn't doubt it. They're cats. I mean, and they you know they're going to do things like that. Uh, I don't have cats anymore, but when I did have cats, one of them lived on my lap. Uh, when I worked, and the other one, uh, when I I got really intense in my writing, would leap up on the keyboard with incredible regularity. As soon as I was really blasting away, whoosh, this cat would appear on the keyboard. Well, they, some- they, are, they are particularly spiritual creatures. That's one of the, reason I, the reasons I like having them around. I, find, I, I, I mean, I don't want to offend dog people, but I just find cats to be a little bit more intuitive to some things. Well, you know, dogs are loyal. My, my wife used to tell a wonderful story about the dog. It's a uh, story that she learned, I guess, from a Lakota Sioux. And so it's probably a, a Sioux story. I'm, it could be another. She knew a lot of people from different Indian traditions, Native American traditions. And this one was that God... Uh, decided that humans were so different from other animals that he would build, would create a, ca- a, a chasm 
between man and put man on one side and all the animals on the other. And at the last minute, dog jumped across to be with man. So dog's got a place too. And just saying that to the dog people. Okay, let's now let's go on. Let's dig in a little bit here. Uh, you mentioned the uh, the mystery schools, and I read recently that the uh, the Eleusinian some uh, goblets had been found in Eleusis, and the in the contents analyzed in other words the scrapings from the interior and they were found to be hallucinogenic uh substances and this gets me into the way the because we're not we, we don't we're very into the useful the spiritual value of these substances if used correctly on this show uh and this gets us into the seeing that was done in the ancient mystery schools and transferred to the Gnostics, perhaps. And could this be the key to their unremarkable understanding of quantum indeterminacy, which I think is at the core of your story? Mm -hmm. I think that that was certainly a tributary um, to what we're talking about. And, you know, even the Delphic Oracle, I mean, there's theories that the gases coming up from, uh, you know, the earth, uh, you know, creating the hallucinogenic effect were uh, part of uh, what went on with the Oracle. Now, um, you know, I'm not a major proponent of, of drugs. However, like you, I do believe that with proper usage, they can play a role. And the way I think that some of these hallucinogenics work, my, just my own personal opinion, Look, I, I, I believe entirely that we're living in a virtual reality, a simulated reality. And that, that's something, you know, I cover in the book and we can get into that later if you want. But I believe we are living in a simulated reality. And things can happen where you have a break in that simulation and you start to look behind the screen. It was like, it's just like you're watching a movie and someone tears a hole in the screen. And wait a minute, there's something back of this. I thought this was real when I was looking at, but there's something further back there. So, you know, these, these, these hallucinogenic drugs can provide a tear in the screen where people can have, you know, experiences behind it. Now you don't need hallucinogenic drugs to do that. Okay. You, you, to some people, it happens. I, I know you don't. I've never taken one in my life. Yeah. My uh, wife used to say, why should you bother to spend the money considering yeah. what you see and experience? Go well, when I, when I was, when I was young, I did, I did, you know, have some experience with that. Um, but, uh, you know, it, 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 it's, it's another avenue, um, that can, uh, show people that there's something, you know, behind the illusion here. Now, for other people, say like myself, something happened spontaneously. It happened kind of spontaneously. Um, Philip Dick, uh, the, the author, you know, who was the I, probably best known for Blade Runner, was a noted Gnostic and had Gnostic experiences. Carl Jung, the great psychologist who I cover in the book, uh, was another kind of spontaneous Gnostic. Wolfgang Pauli, the famous physicist of, of that era, uh, was, uh, you know, had, had these, uh, what I would call spontaneous Gnostic type of dreams. Um, and, but for, and other people, it, it can come through the study of scripture or, you know, other avenues. Like I say, there's not one avenue to opening up your consciousness. It, it can happen in, you know, several different ways. And hallucinogenics is, you know, one possible way that it could do that for people as long as it doesn't get abused and out of control. 
Wolfgang Pauli came across a, a constant called the fine structure constant that has no reason for existing. In other words, all of the constants, the Planck constant and so forth, we can, we can understand the physics of why they are like that. The fine structure constant upon which the entire structure of the universe depends is it's one one forty seventh, and that's it. It's a universal number, but there's no reason for it. It's as if God simply decided on it, and that led to the relationship between Wolfgang Pauli and uh, Carl Jung. So this gets me to something that you you have referred to now twice about the nature of reality and said, let's talk about it later on. Well, after the next break, it's going to be later on, so we're going to do it. Okay, we'll be right back. Okay, we're back. We're talking to Peter Canova, his book, Quantum Spirituality, peterconova.com. You can get through to his podcast on peterconova.com, well worth doing, fascinating stuff, knows his stuff, obviously. Quantum Spirituality, a mind-opening book, very worth your time if you are on a serious journey. And I think most of us on this show who are involved in Dreamland are on pretty serious journeys. So, but where are we going? Well, that's what's serious about the journey. We're not sure. Um, the Let's talk about basically this question. Is reality real and where does where does a mystery like the fine structure constant come from because Wolfgang Pauli was obvious arguably one of the greatest physicists who ever existed and he couldn't figure it out it doesn't have any origin except conceivably the mind of God there's so many ways to answer this question um, let me let me begin by saying that, all right, let's talk about reality. What is reality? Well, reality isn't what we observe with the five senses. And we can pretty much know that because I think everybody understands in this day and age that the physical world that we detect as solid objects is not solid at all. In fact, we know it's composed of subatomic particles, that are whirling around in space and they have their properties are quite different from the world that they seem to create. So I think it was Richard Feynman, the famous physicist who said that anybody who thinks they understand quantum physics doesn't know what they're talking about because it is so baffling and so counterintuitive. Okay. But let, let's, let's start off with this understanding. Atoms themselves are only 1% mass and they're 99% light energy in space. So we fixate on the 1% that is the mass to the exclusion of the understanding of anything else. Obviously, you know, we, we are, uh, our, our minds, our mind energy is envisioning us as beings, physical beings in a solid world. But the study of quantum physics tells us that's, uh, that's anything but true. In fact, even starting with Max Planck, 
1900, which was the birth of the quantum age. Max Planck was a brilliant German physicist who was the father of quantum physics. And Max Planck himself said, I can assure you one thing, that there's no such thing as particles. There's no such thing as atoms. What there is, is an intelligent force. And there is a mind behind this intelligent force. And it brings to vibration what we consider particles and what we consider matter. So it, essentially what he was saying is that all of creation is essentially a mind thought from the supreme being, from a supreme intelligence. Now, this isn't Swami Ramalama Ding Dong telling you this stuff, okay? This is the father of quantum physics that made this first observation. Everything I've been that we, trying to get Swami Ramalama Ding Dong on this show for years, but he never yeah, will come. Go ahead. Yeah, I'll, I'll put in a word for you. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but you know, uh, everything that we've discovered since Max Planck reinforces this. There are no such things as particles at the fundamental level of reality. What there is are energy waves. So essentially, everything is a force field, a quantum field, and a, a light energy field. And it's from this light energy field that particles arise. The appearance of reality arises under certain conditions. They call it the collapse of the quantum wave from an energy to a particle state. It happens under certain conditions. So the easiest way to understand this is, you know, I live here in Florida and we have something called water spouts. Okay. Water spouts essentially are like mini tornadoes that form over water. They look exactly like tornadoes but they're composed of water and when you look at them you know they look just like a tornado and you want to stay away from them so um you can look at a smooth river or you know a, a sm smooth ocean and these water spouts will form now the the ocean underneath is very smooth but the water spouts form something distinct they're that you they're distinct you can see them and they look real to you but they're really composed of the smooth water underneath it Quantum physicists are saying that's the same way that the universe operates, that we, our physical reality is like a blip or a blemish in this smooth field. And it's all part of the one field. It's not separate from it. It's just a separate appearance from the energy field. So all life really is just that. It's an appearance of deeper forms of energy. We are really all composed of light energy. And that light energy happens to be controlled by, it's an intelligent light energy, okay? The source, the source consciousness is just that. It's consciousness, but the vehicle it uses to express itself is through light energy. And that light energy contains intelligence. It, and that intelligence really is like DNA. It, it, it has algorithms that give shape to all the various and multifold forms that we see in creation or even that we don't see in creation. It, 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 it gives them each their distinct characteristics, but they are still all part of that one original energy. So the Hindus have often said that any consciousness apart from the one consciousness itself, they call them the mind sons and mind daughters of God, which would include us. And, you know, we get back to that analogy of the power grid and the relay station. If the, if the power source is, God or consciousness, and it expresses itself or projects itself out into different points of consciousness. We're like the relay stations. And I call them relay stations because the energy, in order to experience individuality, 
you have to have a limitation of consciousness or a limitation of energy. Because if you, you weren't operating out of limited consciousness, if we, if angelic beings, spiritual beings, whatever you want to call them, did not have consciousness that was limited from the we'd be absorbed back into the source. We, we, you know, but, but it's all the same. It's all just a step down frequency of vibration. So the price that you pay for individuality is a lower frequency or a limited consciousness that allows you to think that, you know, we're operating as our own independent actors, but right. we are really part of a source consciousness that we come from. It's essentially an illusion, a very clever illusion. Yes. Now, in the second part of the show, we're going to be going more deeply into just how this all relates. How does modern physics relate to Gnosticism? And above all, how can we use this in our lives? Because knowledge is power. And in this area of human endeavor, thoughts really are things. They really are very powerful. And we're going to get into what the the power of these thoughts may be and are and how this can be used to uh, make your life into something much richer and, uh, if you will, more Gnostic than it has been before. We're going to be talking about things like the power of the archons and who they are and the significance of the visitor experience and the greys and who they are and what all of this means uh, with a man who who knows a lot of answers to these questions. Free Dreamlanders, it's been great having you with us and we'll see you again next week. We're talking to Peter Canova, his website, peterconova.com, his new book, Quantum Spirituality. You can intersect with his podcast or on his website. Uh, it's available on what radio channel is it again? Uh, Dream Vision 7 Radio Network out of Boston, Massachusetts. Right. And uh, you can, but the easiest way to get to it is to get to it through petercanova.com, I think. Is that correct? Yeah, there's a, there's a portal that goes to the website as well as uh, to my book, Quantum Spirituality. And I have a, a, a very um, highly regarded uh, trilogy called the First Souls Trilogy, which was won 25 national and international book awards. Oh, wow. And it's an entertaining way of getting through the same information that is in the Quantum Spirituality book. Well, tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, um, actually, that was my first uh, literary. Well, not not it was. I did some short stories at, at competitions and things like that before. But um, I decided when I wanted to uh, write uh, or inform other people uh, about these uh, experiences and help them gain these experiences. The first thing I I decided to do was to do it in an entertaining or fictional form. So many people have written self-help books and things like that. And, you know, I said, well, you know, I, I don't want to just become another number there. So let me do something unique. And I wrote a book called The First Souls Trilogy. And it is about the first spirit consciousness to incarnate in the material world. And it traces their lives over different epochs of history, usually at junctures when humanity is either going to evolve or go backwards. And the first book is called Pope Annalisa. It's about an African nun that becomes the first female pope at a time when America and Iran are going into a nuclear war. 
And uh, they are geopolitical spiritual thrillers. They're page turners, but they do incorporate a lot of the spiritual principles and the knowledge that we're talking about here. But, you know, like I say, in a, in a, in a more kind of like entertaining form. Quantum spirituality, my recent book, was actually the 35 or 40 years of research that I put in to um, develop the thematic uh, ideas in, in the fictional trilogy. So after I wrote the fictional trilogy, I said, well, I might as well, you know, get the research out there, too, so people can understand a little bit more uh, about the, you know, the background of this whole body of work. So that that's how it all came about. We can no longer attend a mystery school. They've been suppressed and we no longer have the ability to find empowerment in the gods we are a secularized race at this point we've been detached from our mystical origins and i would like to go now to the idea of the gnostics idea of creation what it was and what it meant can you get us to start there and then we're going to go into the various different powers including the archons right. but let's start with the, the gnostic idea of creation okay this is a very important and very sometimes difficult to understand subject so you're going to have to bear with me a little bit here we'll bear I'm believe sure. me and 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 if uh, if uh, if it's becoming if you think it's becoming a little hard to understand or not explaining well, please let me know. But uh, it it is so critical because this is where the juncture of quantum physics and ancient mysticism reach each other. So um, the Gnostics had a creation story, and it said that all creation started from one source. And the one source desired to know itself, just the way we like to know ourselves, to self-reflect and everything. But nothing can know itself in absence of a contrast, in absence of something else. So if you're a supreme being and you're everything that is, how on earth can you know yourself? You can be, but, you, you know, you can exist, but you don't necessarily, you're not necessarily able to experience something outside of yourself because you're everything. So... The way that the source handled this was it projected other sources of consciousness out, emanated from itself, as we discussed before, projected it, flowed, you know, the essence of itself out into other sources of consciousness, more limited sources of consciousness. We've discussed the necessity of limitation. Now, these beings could be called, you know, angels in, in, in Christian terminology. The Gnostics called them eons which means eternities in, in Greek. And what were these aeons? Well, look, you can think of them as people, if it helps you more, visualize it, but they really weren't people. Essentially what they were is sources of conscious vibrations, uh, 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 vibrating in a certain consciousness. And they were given names like truth, wisdom, justice, mercy. So you can see what they really were is that they were archetypes of the essence of God the, the 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 different aspects of of what of God's personality in effect what God was trying to project so they had all these names and essentially what they were is if you know anything about you Plato or Jungian psychology is they were archetypes archetypes are images guiding images 
that filter on right on down through our material existence. They're the images that inspire us, that, that, uh, that you know, they're the ideals that we strive towards. These are what archetypes are. They're blueprints in effect of the divine, of the divine mind. So these um, eons or these spiritual beings sort of revolved around the supreme consciousness just the way the planets might revolve around the sun. And what held them together was that they were subordinate to the will of the one. They were in harmony with the will of the one. It turns out that the youngest of these, the last projected of these, who was called Wisdom, uh, and in the Gnostic text, her name is Sophia. Now, Sophia means wisdom in Greek. And the only reason you probably don't recognize the name of Sophia because it's all throughout the Bible is because we get the English translations. And the English translations say wisdom. They don't say Sophia. So if you look in the Old Testament, for instance, in the book of Job and Proverbs, she plays a very vital role. She said, I existed from the beginning. I was there with the one at the beginning, meaning she was a facet of the one itself. She was an aspect of the one consciousness itself. But wisdom grows through experience, right? So she wanted to experience something other than the one consciousness, the hive mind, the, you know, she wanted to sort of take a break from the will of the one that the others were adhering to and express her own will. She wanted to express individuality. She had the first impulse of individuality. So what does she do? She looks outside of the harmony of the, of, of the orbit around the one of these, of these beings. And she looks outside and there was something outside called chaos a very modern, a very modern uh, quantum term, chaos. And what was chaos? Chaos was the unformed field of quantum energy that had not yet been touched or organized by the mind of God. It was the area of potential where things could happen. Quantum potentiality, quantum foam, the, 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 the modern scientists give it many different names, but basically it, it is the, uh, the quantum field itself. So Sophia sees the chaos of the quantum field. She goes, ah, maybe that's a place where I can express what I what have the experience I want. So she plunges her divine essence into chaos. But something very strange happens when she does that. Chaos is not a vacuum. It's not empty space. Now they found, they call it something called zero point energy. They found our universe does not contain any vacuums. Anything we think is empty space is seething with virtual particles. We can't see them, but they're there. So the same thing is described in the Gnostic text. Sophia goes into chaos, which turns out not to be a vacuum, but has these virtual particles and it called proto matter. That's pretty stunning when you think of that, because what is a virtual particle? It's a particle that has not yet become material. It's, 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 a, right. it's a, it exists in potential, but it has, it doesn't exist in actuality. So the, all, all, already they're describing several things of modern quantum theory. You know, the, the lack of a vacuum, the vacuum being filled with, with uh, virtual particles. And Sophia goes into this, um, this, this state of chaos and something very strange happens. The protomatter, the virtual particles, start swarming around her like iron filings would be attracted to a magnet, and they engulf her. And they start to slow her energy down, her high energy. They start to slow her down, and she cries out to heaven, save me. I'm becoming as lead. I am becoming as matter. I'm turning into matter. 
the she activates these virtual particles they're becoming material and they're using sucking off her divine energy to 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 do that okay now there, what 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 is this that we're seeing this is the god particle this is an exact description of the god particle yes it is now, tell us again what the god particle is in modern physics yeah um the god it was theorized for many years that our universe is surrounded by a field called the higgs field and within the Higgs field, there are these virtual particles called Higgs bosons. And the Higgs bosons were said to somehow convert energy into matter, right? So they discovered the existence of the God particle in 2012 at the Giant Hadron Collider in CERN. They, they right. proved this 50-year-old theory. And what happens is that energy enters into our universe, and we don't know where it comes from. Scientists, incidentally, they don't know what energy is. They can manipulate it to some extent, but they don't know its origin and they really don't know what energy is. So energy comes into our universe from whatever the source is, and uh, it's coming in at a high rate. The Higgs bosons attach themselves to these high moving energy fields and slow their vibration down, slow their energy down to the point where they coagulate into matter. Well, this is the exact description of what happened to Sophia with the protomatter. The protomatter swarms around Sophia, slows down her high energy. She even cries out to heaven specifically, I'm becoming matter. Save me from, I'm turning into lead. Save me from this matter that I'm becoming. She's losing her high divine energy to these, these virtual particles that are slowing her down and creating matter, okay? This so, is, wait a minute, this is just about the best description of the relationship between ancient Gnostic understanding and modern physics I have ever heard, folks. Note it carefully. Go ahead, Peter, that's brilliant. So what, what, what the texts then go on to say is that this new state of matter could not coexist with the energy in the spiritual sphere. And it was expelled in a violent upheaval and projected apart in a violent upheaval. What, what are we looking at, Street Whitley? We're looking at the Big Bang, okay? Right. We're, we're, we're looking at being, where the Big Bang was the appearance of something out of nothing, something that was projected apart from another dimension that we can't see into, you know, into materiality. So here we have a description of, of, the, of the Big Bang. Uh, now, we already had a description of the parallel universes because in the Gnosticism, the parallel universes were these, these aeonic beings. Each of them really was a vibrational frequency. Yeah, and they, the dimensions in the Gnostic text weren't so much places as much as they were dimensions of vibrational frequency. That's what delineated them you know, from, from one another. That's what differentiated them from one another was their vibrational frequency. So we started off with these uh, uh, parallel universes around the source. We go to the projection of Sophia, the God particle action, slowing her down, becoming matter, then projecting apart and creating the Big Bang, which is our, which is our physical universe. So the Gnostic creation story, and these are just a few of the things. I could cite other examples, but I'm just citing three here for simplicity. We have parallel universes, we have the God particle, we have the Big Bang, all pretty graphically described in the Gnostic text. Well, whoever turned you on spiritually did the rest of us a great favor because that is that is really, really useful stuff. Uh, now, let's. I want to move now to the adepts and specifically to one adept, to Jesus. I've written myself, I've written a book called Jesus, A New Vision, 
that is intended to detach Jesus from the Roman God he was made turned into in the fourth, third, and fourth centuries AD, uh, primarily by the Emperor Constantine. Now, he let's go back to the Judea of the time Jesus walked the earth mm -hmm. and to his life. And are you familiar with the uh, sayings, Gospel of Thomas, and such texts as that? Very much so, yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk in that in the, in the context what Jesus was actually saying before he was his ideas were essentially suppressed and he was transformed into a Roman god. Yeah. Well, first, let's understand that there was no such thing as Christianity in the days of Jesus. If you had used the term Christian during Jesus's time, nobody would understand what you're saying. It, the, the, it was a movement called the way. The followers of Jesus would describe themselves as followers of the way. Now that indicates something right there, that the way was a spiritual path. It wasn't a religion. Now I often say that prophets start religion and their uh, pro prophets speak the heart of God and their followers start religions because the followers don't have the direct experience of the divine knowledge or the divine energy that the prophet has. But Jesus was certainly uh, divinely inspired, a being of, of, of high, a being of high consciousness, perhaps one of the highest, the, perhaps the highest expression of consciousness we've ever seen in physical form. Uh, and, uh, or one of them certainly. And, um, you know, what he was, what he was teaching was a way or a path of spiritual enlightenment and spiritual knowledge so that people essentially could experience the same things that he experienced. He always said, ye shall do greater than, 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 than I, uh, which meant that we all have the potentiality. We all have the Christ. We all have the potentiality to have the Christ consciousness of the Christ spirit that, that Jesus embodied. He was the one who read a number of chapters before us in the book of, in the book of wisdom and the book of knowledge. So was he, was he the son of God? Well, yeah, he was the son of God. And we all sons and daughters of God, but yes, did he occupy a, a special, a, a special position? I believe that he was a soul that was highly enlightened and very close to the source that certainly came down to help liberate, um, you know, humanity that had become lost in these material, you know, prisons, uh, that the Gnostics, as the Gnostics would describe it. And so he certainly was a, uh, a you know, a unique being. Um, and that really, uh, that really was, you know, the, the story of Jesus. And if you, and if you, the interesting thing about the gospel of Thomas, if you mention it, the gospel of Thomas is a series of wisdom sayings, right? You know, very, very, pra very practical wisdom sayings. In fact, in fact, the, uh, some of them actually reflected almost directly uh, quotes by Carl Jung. Uh, and, uh, you know, so you can see that he was speaking both to the human spirit. He was speaking to human psychology. Um, he was speaking in the Gospel of Thomas at all levels to try and get people to understand. And you remember in the Gospel of Thomas, he frequently says, for those who have the eyes to see and the ears to hear, you know, yes. uh, uh, so, so essentially he was, he was trying to, uh, appeal uh, to those people that we talked about in the original, um, Christian mystical church, um, the ones who had the ability and the desire to grasp the higher mysteries. Now, 
he says at one point in the sayings gospel, don't pray, eat the food that you're given whenever you go into any house. Don't believe me. He says all of these things. And then he also takes a disciple aside in another saying, and the disciple comes back and says, they all, the other disciples ask, what did he tell you in secret? And the disciple says, if I told you that, you would have to stone him to death. What he is doing there is saying, stand on your own two feet. Then later, when Christianity comes along, the church says, no, don't stand on your own two feet. Don't do your own search. We'll do it for you. That, to me, is the demonization of the teaching. That is when the teaching was captured by the dark side. You know, that, that has a very special place in my heart, what you just said, because when I do public speaking, very often I start off by telling the audience, don't believe a damn thing I'm going to say to you. And they sit there scratching their heads and say, what, what do we pay to come to this for? And, you know, what I, what I mean by that is that I'm not saying don't listen to what I'm saying, don't, don't, don't reflect on it. Um, you know, by all means, I, I'm trying to uh, tell you some things that could be of importance to you. But ultimately, you know, when you're up on a stage, and Whitley, I'm sure you've experienced this, when you're up on a stage and speaking to your audiences, the audiences have a tendency to deify you. It's, it's, it's sort of like, okay, wow, this person really knows something. They're like really up there. They're like really something special for me. And what I'm trying to tell people is that nobody's any different from anybody else. I'm no different from anybody else. Yeah, I might have read a couple of chapters ahead, and Jesus read numerous chapters ahead of what I did. And yes, we're, we're saying things that can help you. But at the end of the day, the purpose of this whole thing is for you to be your own prophet. So that you don't, exactly. Have, to, exactly. You don't have to take anything on faith from any ever you hear in the light of your own experience. And, and knowledge, incidentally, has two aspects to it. There's book learning or intellectual knowledge, but then there's the knowledge of having direct experience with a higher consciousness. And that is the highest form of knowledge. That's when you can start to judge and discern things in a way that can be really you know, helpful to you and, and helpful to get people to have their own experiences with higher consciousness and don't necessarily believe or take on faith anything I'm saying. Test it out yourself. You know, right. take what I'm saying and, and, and test it out in the light of your own, in your own being and your own revelations and your own insight so that you, you can stand on your own and be your own prophet. And then you don't really have to rely or be dependent on anybody else to spoon feed you sustenance of what it takes to live and to be a, a, a full human being. You know, you need to, to seize that and do it on your own. Each of us is our own living spiritual path. Um, and to each of us belongs the final truth of, of this universe individually. And it's not necessarily going to be the same from one to the next. Let's talk a little bit about the influence of the archons and what they are. Can you give us your insights into the archons and their? Yeah, their... this this is a this is a, a a rather tricky one. I struggled with this whole concept of the archons for a, a very long time. I read uh, a lot about the archons, and I will give you my take on it. Okay, um, 
when Sophia um, fell into chaos and this new state was created, this new state of matter, we have to remember that all matter is not the same. There are degrees of matter. There's there's fine matter. There's a you know, uh, and then there's a, a grosser form of matter. So we know, for instance, that or we're almost certain that the universe uh, has is composed of a great deal of dark matter and dark energy, which is energy and matter that we can't really see because it doesn't react with light. So I really believe there are many degrees of matter that that are. You know, finer and finer, and and the grosser form of matter is probably what we experience here. You know, in uh, in the material world. So when Sophia uh, entered into this, she formed it. Essentially, what happened when that whole universe or that whole vibration that Sophia created by mingling her energy with the proto matter that became matter and that was expelled, it 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 essentially created a whole new psychic dimension okay it was a new it was a new vibrational dimension that i believe was the psychic or soul dimension now there is a difference between spirit and soul okay spirit is consciousness that never left the the harmony of the one soul is that consciousness that broke off to seek individual experience so soul accumulates the record of experience throughout different forms of existence the karma the so forth and so on that's what a soul is a, a soul is a spirit having individual experience and when sophia uh created essentially this new dimension by mingling with the proto matter and it was expelled in in that dimension it was said that that a new being arose to govern that dimension. And that that was the Demiurge or the Archon. And this was a, a very strange being that was described as a serpent with a, with a lion's head. And um, I have an interpretation on that, that uh, why, why that was uh, used as a symbol that I think is unique. I've never seen anybody have it before because um, in the ancient times, the serpent was wisdom. The serpent represented wisdom. Right. Alliance yeah. re represented pride. Now, what I, the Archon, which, which evolved into a figure that was very much associated with a, a, a strong ego influence, I think the reason why they used that spiritual symbol was the Archon of the Lion, the Lion's Head was pride. The body was, uh, was wisdom or the serpent. I think it was the ego usurping um, the, the higher judgment or the higher wisdom. And the Archon has been described in largely negative terms. Uh, it was blind. It was a, it was a, just a shadow copy of the higher dimensions, uh, and it was arrogant and and you know all the things that you would attribute to an egoic personality uh, were attributed to the archon. But the archon was like this kind of quasi spiritual being. It, it it was different from the the real spirits in the in in the spirit dimensions above it. That it it really had more. It, it really. Um, it, 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 they said it possessed soul, but not spirit, which meant, which means that even though it had a certain amount of power in those higher dimensions, it was a limited being. It was nothing like the um, the eons that, that or, or the, the the beings that Sophia had come from. It was a weaker version of them, but nonetheless, it had great power within this uh, newly formed uh, you know realm of matter and let, let's remember that matter at this juncture was probably there probably was an earth that existed there probably was a type of cosmos that was coming into being but it wasn't yet the physical cosmos it was more like an etheric 
or higher vibration that later on, you know, assumed more grosser or denser forms to form the material world and the, the material universe that we have. So I have always viewed the archon as a being that is operating at more of a psychic dimension rather than um, that rather than a material dimension even though it can um assume or, or or how can i say like a parasite it can latch on to energies or people at a more material level and express through them kind of like you know almost like a little bit of a possession kind of thing but uh, i really primarily view the archon influence as a psychic influence and i do see at the higher dimensions you know not all at least in my understanding not everything in the higher dimensions is a rosy bed of paradise i believe that there are dimensions of light and shadow where light and shadow contend with one another uh, you know, and, and I, I think that, uh, that influences us down here. I mean, our world, I think by all observation is not a paradise, but it's not yet either a hell. It's a little bit of both. It's right. a world, it's a world of light and shadow. And I think that that is a reflection and operation of things happening at a higher level. But the Archon was said to have formed other beings that were uh, the Demiurge was said to have formed other beings also called Archons with a small a. And uh, these were forces that were preying upon humanity, particularly psychically preying upon humanity. And they would derive energy from fear and negative emotions. And they were also the force that kept the human soul from ascending back to the higher realms. They, they were, they were, they were the, the kind of like a, the, the gatekeepers of the roadblock that would block the human soul from ascending and send us back to earth, you know, reincarnating into these, uh, you know, these, this material illusion that, that we think we're in. So really essentially it was, a, it was a retardant force that was, uh, that assumed kind of a, a quasi uh, quasi existence uh, at the uh, psychic level, but can have very real manifestations, you know, in our lives here. And, you know, different people describe this, I think, you know, Don Juan and, and Carlos Castaneda described them as flitters or the shadows that exist on the fringe of human consciousness, but negatively affect us. Um, I think the archons have been described by different people and traditions in all kinds of different ways. And I think it may be the genesis of some of the things we talk about with the aliens, you know, the greys and yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, the beneficent aliens and, the, and then the, the ones that aren't so, aren't, aren't so friendly. Well, the greys are a very interesting presence in my life in the sense that they definitely do play the role that you're describing of archons, but if you if you embrace the relationship, it changes. In other words, they're not a fixed negative presence. They become teachers if you challenge them. And it's it's been a very interesting life journey for me because uh, I try to challenge them at every point, and I get into all sorts of trouble with them, as my listeners and viewers know. Uh, but that challenging of this whole negative side of it uh, is so important. You know, Annie, my wife, gave us, who was an extraordinary being, and you don't know of her, I'm sure, but my listeners do, uh, gave us a, not a prayer, but an invocation. And the first part of it is we ask the light to enrich our being, and then we ask the dark to enrich our knowledge. So it is uh, 
it's a very high level of prayer because it asks both sides to engage with us. Well, the, the, one of the Gnostic texts actually gives the instructions, um, kind of like a book of the dead of, for a soul trying to ascend and how to challenge the Gnostic, uh, the uh, Archon gatekeepers. Uh, and and, and it, it gives a series of responses. Uh, it, it's almost like a debate, kind of like you're saying, Whitley, it's almost kind of like a debate that's going on. And Can you it, tell us which text it is? Because I'm sure know, some I, of my listeners... I, I'm trying to remember. I don't know if it's, um, I don't know if it's in the Gospel of uh, Mary Magdalene. Uh, I, I've read so many Gnostic Gospels that I, I, I can't. I might be in the Gospel of Mary Magdalene because I think it's Mary Magdalene that are, are, is de- describing these things possibly. And, and incidentally, the disciples rebuke her, the male disciples rebuke her because they don't really understand. But um, anyway, right. her, her, Mary's. Gospel is beyond. It is the great gospel. It is be. It we only have fragments of it, but it is beyond almost anything from that era in terms of its mystical power and its intellectual sophistication. Well, she she was she was the primary disciple according to the Gnostics, and I com- completely believe that she she was the one who most closely vibrated with Jesus to the point where she would often have to explain the radical teachings to the male disciples uh, in a way that they could understand it because they rarely understood what Jesus was saying. I mean, they were fascinated right. with him, but they rarely understood him and they had to be explained in, you know, numerous times. And she was the one who would essentially translate what, um, you know, he was saying to them. And my namesake, Peter, who was the supposedly the, the primary disciple in the Orthodox Bible and the founder of the Roman church was pictured as probably the biggest dunce amongst the disciples. Right. He, he didn't really get it. But I, I, anyway, getting back to what we were saying. So uh, it, it was like a set of instructions that they said, well, you know, when you pass, that they, they will challenge you with certain, uh, you know, questions and responses. Like they'll say, who are you? What, what, you know, what, what, you know, what are you? And, and, and it coaches people to essentially push back on them and debate in order to, you know, ascend, um, you know, beyond that sort of dark, that dark shadow. Um, it's very, 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 very interesting. But, you know, I, I um, when it comes to the subject that I know you've often covered on, UFOs or UA, UAPs, I guess they call them. Now. I, I, look, for me, it's going to be really UFOs because I'm, I'm old school. But, Unknown objects. Yeah. Um, yeah uh, you know, I, 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 my thought on that, and, and, and my thought for a long time before I think this became more popular was that maybe rather than being extra, extraterrestrial, they were interdimensional. And it, what, I, what I thought was that if these beings had a way of, basically transporting some of their physical laws like a like being in a cocoon or a balloon encased in a balloon if they had a way of transporting some of their physical laws which are probably different or you know from what we experience here and they were able to come here and they were able to operate under their own you know atmosphere in effect their own mini atmospheres that that might account for a lot of things like some of the radically strange movements that defy, you know, our laws of physics and and so forth and so on. And also, um, you know, being interdimensional, I think that they would certainly have the ability to operate through people's psyches because a lot of what you hear from people who are abductees, you know, maybe, maybe personal physical experiences, but I think they could just as well 
the psychic experiences, which are just as real, incidentally. Okay, well, I, I think mean, they're. I think they're both. Yeah, I think that because I was physically injured in one of my experiences, and I've had a variety of physical and non-physical experiences, and sometimes telling the difference is really hard. Okay, we have lost Peter, and I guess the hurricane has uh, usurped the internet in his world. And uh, I would like to thank all of you, as always, for being subscribers to unknowncountry.com. And I hope that you keep on keeping on. And do tell your friends about UC and about Dreamland, because we always look for new participants, and we, we don't get too many because this is not a super popular direction. This is the down the deep end of contact where we're doing things and working with things that we, um, most people don't because they're not experiencers. They're not even really very curious about it. And above all, they are not deep experiencers. And I know from your comments on the show, many of you are real deep experiencers. So thanks very much. We'll see you again next week, as always. You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. Dreamland is brought to you by UnknownCountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host, and I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander.